This is a humble man recording. Scano, Sego, Ani, you're listening to the Red Road Podcast with Courtney Skye and Hayden King. Good afternoon, Courtney. Good afternoon, Hayden. How's it going? Good. Nia, Nia. It's 2019. That's right. The new year. Yeah. Do Mohawks say new year to sort of, is it like new year or is it just coincidence that it sounds the same? Oh, it's um, kind of not coincidence. So do you know what new year is? New year is like what Mohawks say when it's the new year. Yeah, but okay, do you well, know what? The, but do you know what New Year is? No, no. New Year is like when you, you go and get donuts yeah. at people's houses. Yeah. Why don't you tell us about what the <laughs> the Haudenosaunee uh, ceremony of New Year? <laughs> uh, all I know is uh, friends say, "Hey, come on over on New Year's Day," and I'm like, "What am I? I'm not going anywhere on New Year's Day morning." What do you? What? And it's like you get lots of great Indian donuts, and so all I know is that. At Six Nations, at least, it's the tradition on New Year's Day. You walk, like trick-or-treating, you walk from house to house and you get treats. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't really walk because our territory is so right, big, you drive around. Yeah, right. uh, but yeah, so what we do is that on New Year's Day, um, kids go around and go to like their aunties and their grandma's houses. And they get baked goods. So people make like Indian donuts and Indian cookies and all kinds of other baked goods. And they go around and you have to kind of like all of our stuff be done by noon. So it's in the morning and we do it on New Year's Day. And the reason why we do it and the reason why it's called New Year of what some people believe is because of our long history and friendship with the Dutch. Hmm. Because New Year is a Dutch word for New Year. Is that right? Yeah. And so this is a Dutch custom. Oh that the uh, Haudenosaunee reverse columbus on them. <laughs> Is that a thing? Reverse Columbusing? We appropriated... You misappropriated. We That's claimed okay. for ourselves this tradition of doing it. Because for us, this isn't the new year. Um, you know, it's not the new year until you stir ashes. Um, so this isn't the Haudenosaunee new year, but when uh, our friends... Our new neighbors came and they used to get all drunk and we didn't really want to do that and do that kind of thing. But our friends, the Dutch, that would do this thing and bake cookies and do that kind of thing, that seemed a little bit more fun. So we did that. And I don't know whose idea this was. I have like my own kind of like, um, what do they call them? Um, Theories about this. Yeah. Um, But I think that, I don't know whether it's native kids that were like, we should be able to do this because we get cookies or whether aunties and grandmas were like, bring me those kids. I want to see them. <laughs> I want to start my new year off hugging babies <laughs> because that's what it is. Like you get to just start the first day of like a calendar new year and all of your cousins bring over their cute babies and you get to pinch their cheeks and give them hugs and kisses and then give them candy. Uh, that sounds all right. That mm-hmm. sounds all right. For us, it's like, January is the time that the first month of the 13-month Anishinaabek calendar is sort of the... January is the spirit moon when you reflect and and give thanks. Mm-hmm. sort of solemn. It's not, mm-hmm. There's not a lot of treats involved. Yeah. So maybe I'll come around next year. Yeah. So you had a good start to... Good, good break, good start to 29. It's been a while since we've driven in the podcast car been a while since we've been on the red road Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, we both had a lot of time off, actually. We weren't really... Uh, well, I mean, I was teaching on January 2nd and 3rd, so I didn't really have a lot of time off, but we had a lot yeah. of time apart. Yeah, that was nice. Which I think was good for our mental health. Yeah, good for our relationship to not look or talk to each other. <laughs> the fewer Mohawks in my life, the better. Okay. On a regular basis. <laughs> yeah. Gotta take a breather from you guys. <laughs> yeah. uh, Which is why you moved to our territory. <laughs> it's our territory. Oh my. <laughs> so, yeah, did you have a good break? Yeah, I had a really good time. I mostly hung out with my brothers and their kids and did some cool stuff. We went to a Toronto Rock game that was like co-hosted by Six Nations, Child and Family Services. So the chief, uh, Chief Ava Hill, gave a welcome and talked about the creators game and our game and welcomed people to um, the territory of the Haudenosaunee and others, I believe is what she said. <laughs> and then That's they smoke danced. <laughs> well, I just, I actually just heard that the Mississaugas and the new credit dropped the new from their name. They're just credit? So they're just Mississaugas of the credit now. I mean, I got, I, got a, I got an email saying, hey, upgrade uh, or amend your territorial acknowledgements. It's no longer Mississauga's the new credit. It's Mississauga's the credit. I mean, I don't really understand the name anyway. Well, it's because of the Credit River. Yeah, I know, but the Credit River is nowhere near Mississauga's the new credit. It's also it nowhere near Toronto. Well, it's fact. kind of is. I <laughs> it's mean, not... It's, if you're doing your land acknowledgement in downtown Toronto and you're like, Mississauga is a new credit and the credit river isn't actually in uh, Toronto proper, <laughs> is Toronto proper Mississauga's territory? Just wondering. Uh, well, I mean, they these people came from, <laughs> like, the Bay of Quinty to Toronto mm -hmm. to Mississauga to new credit. Did they, I wonder if they renamed the reserve. They might have. Anyway, we're, um, not, we're not having a podcast about <laughs> territorial acknowledgements. <laughs> Today, we will have to in the or future. ever again. <laughs> we can all just agree that Toronto is so. I territory. had a really good break. Actually, I didn't have a good break. I, no. I had some health issues. Mm -hmm. Not me personally, but mm -hmm. family members had health issues. Uh, close family members dealing with some alcoholism, and uh, I realized how difficult it is for people who are in emergency and crisis situations to actually get any help. Um, you know, maybe I should have been more aware of this, but it's uh, it's it's really difficult to to uh, get some support when when you're dealing with crisis. So that was a lot of my break, and then I uh, taught, and I, I, I wish I had uh, more time to rest. But you ruined my present for you. Yeah, also. sorry about that. Sorry about that. I yeah. uh, Courtney, I didn't get Courtney anything. Courtney got me a few books. <laughs> One of them was uh, Wabgizhik's Moon of the Crusted Snow, mm -hmm. uh, which I <laughs> read over the break before I got a chance to receive her gift. Yeah. Interesting book. I haven't read it. I gave you the book. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I, it was a good book. It was a good book. I think it's a, a good story. Mm -hmm. A very old story, in fact, but it's a good story. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, so now we're back on the red road, mm, back to work, happening. back to work, lots happening. What's happening in, uh, in Indian country these days? Uh, good old protests. We needed it. There was too much peace in Indian country. We were all just, if you are on Twitter, you're Twitter Indian, 
you knew that we were starting to snap at each other because there was nothing <laughs> holding us together. Everyone was fighting over the Christmas break and getting on each other's nerves. We needed a good protest to unify us once again, and here we are. The Wet'suwet'en and the Unistaten have, have actually come to the rescue. Yeah, we needed it. We were getting to... <laughs> I was going to say maybe reconciliation was starting to get hold, take hold and we didn't have our uh, settler colony to, to bash as much as, as we normally do. But yeah, pretty, pretty. I don't know if we needed a wake-up call. Most of us didn't need a wake-up call, but you're right. It was uh, sort of jarring to enter the new year with this um, very aggressive state response to... Wet'suwet'en people defending their land as they have for many, many years from the threat of this gas pipeline or any uh, unwelcome development, in fact, and it's finally finally come to a head. And I think everybody expected it. I think um, everybody expected that this day would come, and uh, now it's here, and it's really disheartening and, um, and frustrating and... Uh, uh, also kind of uh, inspiring to see to see what's happened over the last few days with the RCMP raid and the ongoing resistance of, of the folks out there so um, it's been a week yeah it's been a really big week it was just uh, for me it was a really stark reminder um, I noticed like when people are on social media and they're like amplifying and talking about you know that this is an isolated experience and indigenous people are kind of um, have experienced this type of violence before many different iterations that different people were like referencing other times police had forcibly removed protesting native people from their territories but no one could like fit it all in one tweet <laughs> and so different people were like collecting different instances of when this had happened and when this you know referencing Oka, referencing Standing Rock, referencing you know uh, Line 9 and Six Nations and all this kind of stuff but like there was never we've gone beyond 280 characters of like recent history of police forcibly removing native people and so it was interesting to see kind of it play out in another way and the different police responses that have come as a result and i think um that's been very interesting it touched a little bit uh close to home for us i think we have some friends that were there that um were arrested and that was also another added layer to that about how our networks and our kinship are connected to one another and yeah it was um, a, a painful re-traumatization I think to see that happening and to be worried and concerned and especially with the lack of media coverage um, that was available to the people that were there the lack of media oversight um, yeah, it was mm -hmm. pretty scary. Yeah, and I mean, it's still ongoing. Uh, we're recording this podcast, and um, we don't actually know what's going to happen next. As uh, At the time of recording, we know that the hereditary leadership has um, come to some agreement with the RCMP to allow uh, TransCanada to do some, uh, some pre-construction work. So they're lifting the blockade to allow that. Uh, but of course, that doesn't mean that they're consenting to this... Mm -hmm construction they just want to prevent any future harm so we don't know what's going to happen uh it, we, we could see more confrontation um we could see more conflict but this is mm -hmm. of course uh a pattern i think that some of the cases that you reference it's actually remarkably similar what it, it doesn't matter if we're talking about 
um, Oka, if we're talking about Ipperwash, Gustafson's Lake, um, Restigouche, uh, Caledonia, uh, Elsie Bogtog, um, the list, the very long list of First Nation RCMP or OPP police conflict, uh, follows a very same pattern. You know, it, First Nations, um, and in some cases the Inuit are defending their territory, asserting their jurisdiction. Uh, a company has a permit from the province or territory to develop that. Uh, the permit gives them license to uh, earn an injunction in a provincial court, which uh, police are then required to enforce. Uh, once they enforce that injunction and the First Nation refuses to move or leave to allow the company to company in, violence ensues and it just happens over and over and over uh, like that and I think that the I think what's different about this particular case is how clear questions of legitimate authority are coming into focus mm -hmm. so I think more than any example in the recent past where this is happening people are t starting to talk about the rule of law and the crown's authority and uh, the nature of injunctions mm -hmm. and recent Supreme Court jurisprudence and really unpacking uh, these sources of legitimacy and I haven't really seen that before I just think that the, the level of sophistication that First Nations are now bringing to this discussion um, is really hard to combat you know I think that in Trudeau and Horgan there are these two politicians that are pretty savvy when it comes to First Nation politics and pretty um, slippery when it comes to their discourse and their language, but I feel like First Nations, um, in particular, folks at Unistaten, but across the country, are really, really effective at pointing out the logical inconsistencies of the province's authority to grant the permit in the first place, and the Crown's authority generally to uh, 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 have any any legitimate jurisdiction in these cases. Yeah, it's really interesting and you see different people pulling at kind of different lines of logic or different kinds of arguments, right? Whether it's a, a human rights-based approach based in within Canadian law around what it means to have uh, rights and representation or whether it is, um, you know, international law or the laws of the territory and the people that are living there. There's, it's These kinds of actions are inconsistent with all those different types and forms of law, right? That there's not kind of this instance... Um, someone on Twitter was talking about this yesterday about how like well no one really knows um, what sweat and law and no you know it can't be up to the province to learn kind of these different kinds of laws but they were kind of saying like provincial law is a thing that not everyone in the province understands which is very true provinces have um, you know two three times as many laws that they've passed and created that govern a whole you know broad sweeping realm of topics that no one has a full and comprehensive understanding of. Um, I took a course in provincial offenses when I was going to be a police officer and we were, one of our first tasks was like go through different pieces of provincial legislation, see what type of law applies to you, read through them and see what kind of things you can find, what, you know, does it make sense or does it make you laugh kind of thing. And so I was reading the Bees Act of Ontario 
and um, a legal defense to someone trespassing against your property is you can legally enter someone else's property um, if you're going to retrieve your lost bees. (laughs) So if you own an apiary and your bees abscond their hive and you believe they're on someone else's territory, you can go and like, yeah, yeah, you can go and get them, right? And if someone's there and like you can't be on my land, you're like, well, I have this legal authority under this law to retrieve my bees. And so that was like at the time, right? I don't even know if it's still a, a you know piece of law now, but it was just like, oh, that's very interesting. And so um, some of these laws are on the books; they don't really get applied. They're not really um, used. Some of them are kind of like dead in the books, but they are there, and no one has like a full or comprehensive understanding unless it directly applies and impacts your kind of day to day life. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point because I, I think a lot of the responses to this particular situation is using the frame of complexity. Mm-hmm. So we can't, you know, the, the, the Canadian response, or in some cases the Canadian responses, we can't possibly engage with these people when they have two governing bodies and uh, mm-hmm. opaque laws that govern the territory. You know, that's just, mm-hmm. there's too much complexity for us to engage in. Mm-hmm. But um, the reality is that Canadians, by and large, are are ignorant of their own laws in some cases. It's mm-hmm. true. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that has um, really impacted my work and in different ways and in different kinds of spaces is that no one, not necessarily everyone, has that same understanding. You know, I had um, dealt with some organizations in the province that were at a provincial level trying to organize around the most uh, recent election and I was talking about you know how government changes and how they their operating changes when it when they're preparing for an election and I made reference to when the brit drops which is when there's an indication that uh, you know that the leader intends to notifies the crown that they're going to seek an election and blah blah all this kind of like initiating all the pomp and circumstance and procedure of an election and the person I was talking to, who's like a very senior executive, didn't know what that meant. Didn't know what it me- meant for the writ to drop and the implications that has for like service and programming. Which is pretty alarming, but at the same time, there's a lot of people that do understand that now. An increasing number of indigenous people are gaining this literacy around the, um, that, uh, that... I almost want to call it like spirit and ceremony, but the spirit and ceremony that is there around settler colonial governments that they often deny exist right this idea of like the spirit intent of law or you know the rule of law and all these kinds of things that are not really ever written down but are principles that are often talked about right conventions yeah yeah well i think what's happening is indigenous people are far more sophisticated than the average Canadian because not only do we have to grasp our own legal traditions, conventions, uh, and norms, but also settler conventions, norms. And so the, I think often the complexity argument that Canadians use and politicians use to, they sort of use it as an alibi, right? Like we, 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 we must intervene because these, these, Indians can't sort themselves out and things are too complex. You know, they used to use the word division and now they use complexity. Uh, And it is true that, you know, we have multiple types of law, whether it's uh, laws of the land, laws of violence, uh, laws between people, laws between uh, people and the creator. Um, Many sources of law can be divine law, can be custom, customary law, can be positivist law. Like it, 
our legal systems are in fact quite complex mm-hmm. um, but that shouldn't be an alibi for mm-hmm. uh, politicians to, mm-hmm. to intervene yeah. uh, because of course it's 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 uh, there's a self-interest uh, there just to kind of facilitate this this development and at the end of the day really it's not complex it's very simple in this case uh, it's not clear that the province actually has legitimate authority or title to this particular land that it's issuing permits on I mean obviously the, the two of us would say that it's Wet'suwet'en territory and they have to come up with their own diplomatic principles to mitigate any conflict that exists within the community and then the province gets to talk about uh, uh, partnering or consulting or earning the consent of the community Uh, but they don't do that they don't do that and so not only is there the double standard that you mentioned about Canadians not even knowing their own legal system um, but it's it's not as complex despite our sophisticated legal systems it's not as complex as they make us uh, believe. Yeah, well, it's also the difference between, like, this conflict has put into sharp focus the difference between uh, hereditary versus the imposed uh, band council system mm-hmm. and the difference that and how that impacts different communities, right? And we've had a number of different conversations about this and, you know, and where it applies in different ways, but I think people, or definitely the average Canadian don't doesn't know that the representative system that a lot of First Nations have was imposed on them, right? Often, you know, most often by, or in my community's case, by force, uh, when the RCMP came in in 1924 and uh, arrested all our hereditary chiefs and imposed an elected band council system on the community, that that representative and form of government is imposed by the federal government. And some communities have been able to overcome that, whether it's one of the many multitudes of ways of offloading themselves from the Indian Act or um, kind of gaming the system and electing their hereditary leaders again and again to these Indian Act chief positions. Um, but a lot of communities and a lot of people don't acknowledge that as their leadership. I mean, I certainly don't. I'm a traditionalist and, uh, you know, I follow the Confederacy of the Haudenosaunee and that's our law and that's where it comes from and those are our leaders. But, um, and there's a lot of like undermining in the community and lack of participation in that system. And so there's a lot of validity to the community's critique of saying, well, this imposed system that you've put in our communities by force, no one votes in it. And then the people who do favor, that do buy into capitalism, the Canadian nation state, they're the ones that are using that system to control a larger proportion of the community that doesn't feel it represents their voice. And so they participate in their laws and traditions in a whole different way. But the decision-making body that might be the one making these decisions on behalf of the community and saying that they're granting consent um, isn't doesn't have broad community support, or at least yeah. doesn't have whole community support. Yeah, I think that, you know, if it wasn't forced, like it was mm-hmm. at Six Nations... Uh, it was coerced. I mean, there are, mm-hmm. you can go back to the Gradual Civilization Act where the English created a law that said that they could remove troublemaking leaders if they were dishonest uh, or had a bad temper or were immoral. And, you know, that was basically an excuse to overthrow the band council or to overthrow traditional or authentic governance systems and install the band council system. Mm-hmm. And the great tragedy today is that 
that has been to a large extent very successful not only in the minds of Canadians who are like oh you mean that there's a different governing system that uh, under rights or under that's beneath the band council system or, or, or buried by the band council system rather uh, that, that's they just don't, you mean we dismantled your authentic governing systems really like it, it's, a, it's a shock to Canadians and of course that's the sort of willful ignorance or settler amnesia that accompanies colonization generally but the tragedy is that a lot of that coercion or violence or overthrowing of legitimate government systems actually work to a great extent like Six Nations uh, uh, Pacific Coast First Nations are, are, are among just a handful of communities that still have the authentic governing system still still mm-hmm. in practice and in Nishnabek communities it exists but the institutional mm-hmm. roots have been mm-hmm. have been uh, been covered up yeah. uh, and so there's this real urge I think in our communities mm-hmm. and I think across the country too to to figure out how we can revitalize Indigenous governance through the band council system or around the band council system um, and uh, and I think that First Nations should have the time and the space to be able to do that. I think that if reconciliation means anything, um, and of course we're not sure that it does, or sure that it doesn't rather, uh, it should mean that. Yeah. It should be, you know, all this talk of nation rebuilding and reconstituting nations and institution building that the federal government uses uh, is, is not a, is not the same type of revitalization that indigenous people use so there should be the time and the space to do this work and when cases like this happen it's just clear that that's you know the commitment to that is is just not there and we have to do the work for ourselves so not only do we have to resist the violence uh we have to do it amid this pressure yeah well it's interesting too in this case especially where you have this idea of, like, you know, Justin Trudeau meeting with Indigenous people in this, like, nation-to-nation kind of situation. And, um, you know, the elected bank health system, they're the ones that get to le- meet with political leadership from Canada. And the, tr- the hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en are meeting with the RCMP. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's yeah. really, like... It's well, a, it's yeah. so insidious. The band council system is yeah. so insidious, and I and, and I say this not wanting to mm-hmm. cast the you know the paint everybody with the broad brush, and all band councils are 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 these awful entities mm-hmm. that just want to subvert traditional or authentic forms of governance. But it's so insidious mm-hmm. that you look around today, Canada, and how many First Nation leaders mm-hmm. from elected band councils, Indian Act band councils, are out there supporting the Wet'suwet'en. Um, very, very few, because they know if they do so, then their own authority is challenged. Because if they say, hey, look, there's this hereditary system that exists, well, uh, <laughs> that means that maybe maybe my, the system that I govern in is illegitimate. Mm-hmm. And affirming that, I think, is a threat. So that's part of the reason that we see so little mm-hmm. uh, uh, support from official leadership. And there's this, I think... It just indicates the growing divide between the community um, uh, and, and, and the leadership. Mm-hmm. 
And I think it's what's interesting too is that, you know, in some of the people or some of the sellers I've had conversations with about this is they've kind of, um, in their own history and understanding of like, you know, the value of democracy versus like, you know, their hereditary system, which is like monarchy, they associate monarchy with, you know, a certain set of values and certain set of exploitation and aren't willing to even begin to understand the indigenous hereditary system and how it's different and how the rules and laws of that system are as varied as other forms of, of government, right? Like that's, you know, someone was like, well, you don't really want hereditary government anyway, because it just depends on, you know, someone's birth order that they become your leader, but that's not how our leaders, our title holders are decided upon within the confederacy right so people are assuming that it's just like this oldest person and it gets passed down to their child to their child to their child but that's not how our laws and customs work and so we don't even get a chance to begin to explain like the value or the complexity of our nationhood where it's just automatically dismissed because the settlers are coming with their assumptions and their values right. and their judgments without even having a conversation yeah. and if that's never really happened then how can you say that you're having real you know, nation to nation or anti colonial or reconciliatory relationship building, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, I think, as, as I sort of alluded to already, there's just that, there's that willingness to jump to those conclusions you know, that, mm -hmm. that hereditary means autocratic and non democratic. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, as you motion towards without any understanding that we have accountability measures that can remove uh, uh, leaders in that hereditary line if they do step out of line. But uh, that, that's a conversation that's not, that's not, that's not happening. Um, if anything, I think that, that um, this case helps open up that conversation. Um, and you know, maybe leads to broader understanding of, of indigenous governance. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's asking too much. We're getting closer. Getting closer. Getting closer mm -hmm. to the end of this commute or getting closer <laughs> yeah. to uh, the co co conversation with Canadians uh, uh, that's needed. Hopefully the conversations within ourselves, within our own mm -hmm. communities, right? Mm -hmm. To talk about what does this mean and, and what yeah. does it mean and, you know... There's And there's always been that kind of conversation that exists, right? Whether you're talking about, or even what it means to be Indigenous, right? Does indigeneity necessarily mean that you're following your hereditary or custom line? Because, or does it mean that you are an adopter of, you know, an Indian Act Band Council? And that becomes the next evolution of law and governance in your communities. Or, you know, these um, self-governing First Nations and how they have you know, taken on these legal regimes that are tailored or preconceived by the government and then delegated to them as another form of, you know, decision-making or whatever the hell they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. And this is a, con this is largely a conversation that we should be having internally. And, and, uh, you know, and the, the Good Sand journalist, mm -hmm. Angela Starrett posted a, a question, mm -hmm. I think, I don't know where I saw it, but she said, who, whose authority do you follow in your community, elected or hereditary? And I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> we don't really have a hereditary system. And who should you, mm -hmm. what, what, gov what governance system should mm -hmm. you follow in your community? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people probably look at that question and, and really, I think, hopefully reflect on that. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, because we do need to have those those conversations in our communities, especially those communities that are so overwhelmed by the band council system and it's so entrenched in our in our communities and in our politics. And then the critical conversation that Canadians need to have is, well, what's the source of our authority? What's mm-hmm. the what's the legitimacy of our our governing institutions? Like, mm-hmm. uh, what gives us the right to proclaim rule of law uh, in these cases? And, Terra Nellius. Um, yeah, that's right. Terra Nellius. And where, where does the crown get its authority to, Cross and to crown. criminalize Native people, to prosecute Native people, to uh, uh, negotiate with Native people, to consult? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, that's a, a question that mm-hmm. very few Canadians are willing to, willing to entertain. So are we going to leave any uh, closing remarks, I guess? This commute took a lot less time than we, we <laughs> thought it was going to. We turned on the podcast machine and our GPS is like 90 minutes. And here we are like 40 minutes later, which is a good thing. Yeah. You know, we, we don't want to spend more time on the road. We want to get off the road. Yeah. But this is a... Spend uh, less time with each other. <laughs> Quit looking at your uh, ugly face. That's right. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll have to make this a two-parter because... Of this uh, the mm-hmm. this is a to be continued sort of yeah. discussion, but um, yeah, I just hope that uh, everybody stays safe out there, and um, mm-hmm. just I hope mm-hmm. that they know that so many people in Indian country are thinking about them and support them, mm-hmm. and are sending their strength to them and putting down their tobacco mm-hmm. and and uh, asking that the universe keeps an eye on them and and keeps them safe. So. Um, yeah, I think that's a, that's about it for yeah. now. That's it. Look at we're almost there. That's it for you. <laughs> yeah. So hopefully we get another episode of this podcast out. All right. Stay yeah. tuned. Stay tuned. Is that it? No, but still it's recording. Did you just messed up. Yeah. I don't know how after uh, how many episodes have we had. You've been listening to the Red Road Podcast, created by Courtney Sky and Hayden King. Sounding audio editing by Humble Man Recording. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, Google Play, SoundCloud, and iTunes. I've been driving in my-